John chapter 5. Been going through the book of John. For those of you that are visiting, we've uh, on Sunday mornings going through the Gospel of John, and uh, we're up to chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Uh, we've read our text this morning, and uh, this week, while I was preparing this message, it was getting warm. Um, it was actually getting rather warm. It was, in fact, it was getting hot. And so when the weather gets that way, we might be thinking of ways to stay cool, right? I don't know what, how your method of staying cool was. Uh, some of you have to work outside, and so maybe drinking a lot of water or, uh, you know, having a, a fan or something or air conditioning in your machinery or whatever you're working at, maybe, maybe that's not even available. Uh, but uh, you think of ways to stay cool, even when... Uh, uh, Brother Ken and I take our therapy on Wednesdays. We like to hit the ball into the shade. <laughs> of course, it goes there more times than not anyway, which is what, not really what we want. But, uh, you know, I'm going to give you my opinion about something. One of the most disturbing trends in social media today is when you find someone lounging beside a pool on vacation on their day off and they find it necessary to take a picture or a photo of the pool with their feet in the foreground. Isn't that disgusting? I mean, that's my opinion. You know, that particular shot that I'm talking about, I've, I've given you an example already here. It's the foot pool photo. Frankly, it's disturbing. For one thing, generally, feet are not that good to look at. And I really don't want to see yours even if they are pedicured. But then, if you're by the water while I'm at work, that's taunting. And taunting is just wrong. Well, here in John chapter 5, Jesus returns to the city of Jerusalem. We find him by the local pool, a place called Bethesda, which means house of kindness. Now, this pool was not the kind of pool that I just had pictured for you, okay? It was a very different from the chemically treated blue water oasises that we see today. The people gathered around this particular pool would not have been there to swim or to sunbathe. John tells us that there were all sorts of sick and sad folks gathered around this pool because they believed either superstitiously or soundly, that the pool had something to offer in the way of miraculous healing. Now, I don't know either way whether this was uh, other than what the Bible tells us. You know, I usually go with what the Bible tells us, okay? The Bible tells us that this was a pool of water where the angel would come down at certain seasons, trouble the water, and whosoever was first after troubling the water would be made whole. How that happened, I'm not sure. But that's what the Bible tells us. But on this day, as this passage develops, we find that John, the writer, wants to tell us more than about a story uh, about a poolside miracle. John is trying to reveal to us really the glory of Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, and he can do for you what no one else can do. So John also wants us to see the knowing and following Jesus 
does not come without changes and challenges in our lives. To put it another way, belonging to Jesus is no lazy day at the pool. As we look at our text, I want you to consider with me what it says about the Lord Jesus, about his work in us, about our relationship to him. And so for the first thing we find here is the potential of healing. Now, John chapter 4 closed with Jesus back in Galilee. John chapter 5 opens with him returning to Jerusalem for another feast of the Jews. And upon his arrival, rather than hobnobbing with the other rabbis or hanging out with the leaders of the land, Jesus chose to visit a place filled with miserable and hurting people. The great physician, who we sang about moments ago, the great physician knew where the needy were, and when he arrived at this pitiful place, one man in particular caught his compassionate attention. We find the divine power of Jesus Christ means that whenever he shows up, the potential for miracles is present. He is prone to perform wonders, and yet that's not what he does here for everyone every time. I want you to notice what happened by the pool of Bethesda on this particular day, and think with me about, first of all, the man who was supernaturally lifted The man who was supernaturally lifted. Verse 5 of this text tells us that among the multitude of disabled and desperate people at the pool that day, there was a certain man. I like that term again, certain man. Uh, I don't know what his name is, but the Bible tells me it was a certain man. So I know he was a man. He was there. He's real. It's not just a story. It's just not a myth or a fable. But there was a certain man which had been sick for 38 years. That's a long time to be sick. We don't know exactly what this man's particular disability was, though it seems he might have had some kind of paralysis. But what we do know is that when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew both this man's state and his story. He knew the exact handicap and its long history. And so Jesus asked this man what seems to be a stupid question, In verse 6, he asked him, Wilt thou be made whole? In other words, do you want to get better? What would you think the man would say? Of course I do. But the man tried to explain to Jesus why he wasn't well already. He said, I don't have any help to get into the pool, and I'm not fast enough when the water is stirred uh, to get me in first. You know, Some people spend their whole lives merely complaining about why they are and where they are, and they really never get anywhere besides where they are. Look with me at verse 8 again. It says there, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. Verse 9 says, And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. Now Jesus uses a word here, that speaks of resurrection. He uses the word rise. He anticipates the powerful voice of the Son of God on the last day. Just as Jesus would one day call dead bodies of his people up from the grave to the resurrection, he spoke of the dead legs of this man, and they came to life, and they lifted him up. 
Immediately, it says, the man got up. He picked up his mat, his bed, whatever uh, it was there. He was lying on and he walked away. He was miraculously healed. And Jesus has the power to do that sort of thing. He has the power to heal. But as many look at this story, you uh, have to notice not only the man who was supernaturally lifted, but you also see that there were many who were sovereignly left. Many who were sovereignly left. Again, in verse 3, John tells us that around this pool lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And yet we read that rather than setting up a faith-healing crusade for all these people, Jesus just heals one man and then he disappears. Right after the lame man stood to his feet, Jesus left. Now, why did he not heal everybody that day? For that matter, why doesn't he heal everybody here? You know, there are some people who will be preaching today, you know, it's not God's will for you to be sick. It's not God's will for you to be lame. It's not God's will for you. Listen, that's that's not what the Bible teaches. God didn't heal everybody that day. He healed just one man. And the story reminds us that Jesus has the power to heal and there's always the potential that he will. But physical healings like this one are the exception, not the rule. If you look over the average prayer list in a church today, you'd think that healing was the only thing that God was good for. And we often have prayer requests, but the vast majority are for the healing of someone. And it may or may not be God's will for them to be healed. We often pray as if physical healing is the greatest thing that God could do for any of us. And yet physical healing in this life is really only temporary. Even if he heals you now, you still are going to die at some point. The point is this. In the first coming of the Son of God into the world, we receive a foretaste of His healing power. And the full healing of His people and all the diseases and disabilities awaits the second coming of Christ. Listen carefully. Jesus came to give us eternal life. And in that eternal life that is to come, full and final healing will be given to all of His people. If he chooses to heal us temporarily in this life, it's only a a shadow, a foretaste of the glory that will be in the life that has come. There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness nor pain, no more parting over there. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. Now, if you look at this text, you'll find that the healing of this man was just one part of the story that John is telling. We learn here not only that Jesus uh, uh, has is there with the potential of healing, but we also find here, secondly, the p- priority of holiness. 
This newly healed man walks away from the pool carrying his bed. And as we will see, the religious authorities on that day confronted him fairly quickly because as John says at the close of verse 9, it was the Sabbath. Now we'll look at that controversy uh, that caused that in a moment. But notice first that when this man is confronted, he honestly knows nothing about Jesus. He doesn't even know his name. It seems like this is simply a random healing, an indiscriminate miracle. And yet we find that Jesus does nothing randomly. Jesus healed this man physically because he intended a deeper work spiritually in his life. And the story reminds us that Jesus always wants to do more than just make you whole. He wants to make you holy. I want you to notice here, we see Christ's confrontation of this man's sin. We noted here that Jesus kind of slipped away right after this miracle. But he was not done working on this man. John tells us down in verse 14 that afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple. And Jesus came to this man again. The first time he gave the man a miracle. This time he's going to give him a message. In verse 14, Jesus said to the man, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more. Literally, Jesus is saying, Look, you're healed. Now stop sinning. Jesus saw not only this man's physical problem, but he saw his spiritual problem as well. It was the same problem that every one of us has today. It's the problem of sin. Some people want Jesus to heal their sickness. But they have no interest in being confronted about their sin. They want to stop suffering, but they don't want to stop sinning. And yet this story reminds us that that the same Jesus who said, Rise and walk also said, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. I came across a letter to the Salt Lake Tribune where a man described himself as an atheist, and he was a recovering Sunday school graduate, that he said. And he declared at the very beginning, I love Jesus. But he went on to explain why he was a non-believer who loved Jesus. And among his reasons were that Jesus' gang was a bunch of boozers, prostitutes, and homeless people. And that Jesus said that Ultimately, they would be the ones that would inherit the earth. Now, to the modern mentality, the fact that Jesus ate with sinners and received them means that he must have accepted and endorsed their lifestyles. Is that what it means? No. In reality, Jesus came to save those sinners from their sins. He didn't endorse their sin. He came to save them from their sin. He called them to repentance. And you'll find in this story not only Christ's confrontation of this man's sin, but you also find that Christ's concern for this man's soul. Look carefully again at what Jesus said to this man in verse 14 here. His full statement was this, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. In other words, Jesus said, I healed you of your disability. But if you don't repent, you're going to be in worse shape than before I found you. 
Now, what could be worse than 38 years of not being able to walk? You know what could be worse than 38 years of not being able to walk? An eternity in hell would be much worse. You see, Jesus was concerned not just with the physical disability of this man. He was uh, concerned about the spiritual danger for him as well. Jesus cared for his soul. Eventually, Jesus would go all the way to the cross where his innocent life would be laid down for the sake of sinners like this man and sinners like you and me. For sinners to turn to the Savior for salvation requires them to turn from their sin at the same time. Ephesians 5, 6, the Apostle Paul warns believers not to let anyone lie to us about the nature of sin and its judgment. He says, because of the unrepentant sin, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are disobedient. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we never commit sin anymore, but neither does it mean that we continue in all of our sins. Christ Jesus died not just to cleanse us from our sins, but to call us away from them as well. He cares enough for your souls to grant both forgiveness and repentance. Holiness is his priority. Now in this story, there's another important element that comes into play. We learn here not only that Jesus, with Jesus there's a potential of healing, There's a priority of holiness, but we also learn the problem of haters. When someone gets miraculously healed of a 38-year-long affliction, you'd think it'd be wonderful news that all kinds of people would have been rejoicing with him if they heard about it. Well, not so much. John tells us in verse 10 that when the Jewish religious authorities saw this once crippled man carrying his bed, they confronted him about breaking the Sabbath. He says, you can't be doing that today. The man answered, the fellow who healed me told me to. Rather than asking about the healing, the Jewish authority said, who told you you could carry that bed? They completely missed the miraculous transformation because they were too worried about their religious traditions. And so with this story, John begins this in this gospel to develop a theme of increasing hostility and conflict from these religious leaders toward the Lord Jesus. There's a reminder here that Jesus has enemies as well as friends. That if you follow him, you might get into trouble with this world before you make it into the world that is to come. Notice with me the cause of this conflict. Once the Jewish leaders discovered that Jesus was the one who commanded this man to carry his bed on the Sabbath, John says in verse 16 that the Jews began to persecute Jesus. Rather than running from them, Jesus raised the stakes even higher. He says in verse 17, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. You see, the idea that though God instituted the Sabbath rest for His people, He Himself himself didn't really take the day off. You know, think about it. If God really took a day off and quit working, this whole universe would fall apart. Because God is the one that's keeping this thing going. God is sustaining it. 
Jesus was saying, I work on the Sabbath, not as one who breaks the law, but as the one who made the Sabbath and makes it possible for others still today. Now, the Jews knew just what he meant. John says in verse 18, they went after him even harder because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. In other words, Jesus didn't fit their neat category of theology, would not play by their rules, and so they hated him for it. Jesus challenged their worldview and threatened their comfortable positions and dared to tell them that they were wrong about God. No doubt you know that when you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in our world today, you might get the same reaction. When you tell people that Jesus is the only way, that without faith in him, people will perish and go to hell, there are people today who are going to get angry. They'll call you narrow-minded. They'll call you a bigot. They will tell you that you have no right to question the prevalent worldview of inclusivism and religious pluralism. Who are you to force your beliefs on anyone else? And as we see this conflict developing, I can't help but remember the words of Jesus to his disciples in John 15 and verse 18, where he said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Should we be any uh, surprised if the world doesn't accept the Christian message? God told us this is the way it's going to be. We may not like it, but he said that's the way it's going to be. The world hated him. It's going to hate us too. So the cause of this conflict, notice the culmination of this conflict. Notice very carefully here something that John tells us in verse 16. He records that Jews sought to slay Jesus. And then verse 18 says they sought the more to kill him. The religious authorities were not, play, uh, uh, were not playing at this point. They were not uh, just uh, making idle threats. They were out for blood. And yet, truthfully, so was Jesus. Jesus knew before he ever went to the pool of Bethesda that ultimately he was going to go to the cross of Calvary. He knew that his works and his words would stir up those who were in power among his people. He knew they would hate him. They knew that why he would, they hated him. And he knew what their hatred would lead them to do. And yet Jesus also knew that was why he had been sent. His greatest work would not be the legs of a lame man who was lifted from the ground. It would be his own legs. He laid down on a rough cut wood of a Roman cross. His greatest work would not be when he stretched out his hands to open the eyes of the blind It would be when he stretched out his hands and opened them to receive the nails that pierced them. As John begins to develop the story of those who hated Jesus, he's reminding us that this great Son of God, this Messiah, came not only to dwell among us, but to die for us as well. John wants us to know that to believe upon Jesus... To really see his glory is to see not just the signs that he performed, the miracles, but the sins he pardoned. Your sin, my sin. 
Now his question for the lame man at Bethesda is a fitting one for all of us today. Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be you want to be well? At first, for all of us who are trapped in these increasingly weakening and frequently sickened bodies, we say, Of course I want to be well. I don't want to be sick. Yet Jesus comes to us again and says, I will make you well physically, but your greater need is a spiritual one. To be made well by Jesus, both physically and spiritually, we cannot just spend our lives sitting by the pool. We must go with him to the cross. We must see him there, mocked and murdered by all of his enemies, including us. We must see our part in that awful death, and then we must take our part In that kind of life, the kind of life that is willing to be holy, even if it means we will be hated. The kind of life that takes up his own cross and dies to self. And from there we must follow him to the tomb and to his resurrection. We must see him rise from the dead. Know that in our hearts that a day is coming when he'll say to us, rise. And on that day, all of us will finally and fully be healed by the Lord Jesus, and most importantly, we will be with him. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I'm not sure what your need is this morning. Maybe you need a physical healing. I'm not here to have a faith healing service. We pray for your healing. But the, best, the most important need that each one of us has is a spiritual need, a need for spiritual healing. If you never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do that today, and He can give you the spiritual healing that you need. Let's bow in prayer.